0: good morning, 1BC family. Good morning. There it is. (laughs) All right. We're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Go ahead and turn there. Chapter 18 is where we'll be today. While you're turning there, I want to give you just a little bit of an update. I had some some more details about uh, the new work situation for me coming out this week. Uh, My goal here was to be able to go through the end of May and get as far into or I guess as far through the book of 1 Samuel as we could. And I had it mapped out to where we could get to the end, but we had to skip like six or eight chapters, and it was like, oh, this, we're missing so much. Um, just with the new details that have come out this week, I, I won't be able to hang that long. Uh, so we're going to get through April, and then I've asked two of my good buddies to come and, and try to finish out First Samuel with the body, or at least get as far as they can. Um, so in May you're going to be joined by one of my really good friends. He was here two weeks ago. His name is Doug Mangum. Um, he's a, a local Bible scholar. He's working on his doctorate. He works for Faith Life uh, in Bellingham. He's one of their researchers and writers. So just a guy who knows a ton about God's Word. He specializes in the Old Testament and he's going to be uh, just a tremendous blessing to this body. And then another one of my really good buddies, I, I think some of you here know him. His name's Johnny Poole. He's the area director for FCA. Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Uh, so he's going to count, he just finished teaching through 1 Samuel, so he's ready to pick up wherever we leave off, so hopefully as a body between the three of us, uh, we'll be able to at least make it through 1 Samuel together. So that's the game plan, we'll be with you through April, and then these guys will come alongside and take on some of the teaching in May. Uh, As more details come out, we'll make them known to you, but that's where we stand as of right now. I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into 1 Samuel chapter 18. The last time we were together, it was Easter. And the time before that, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is famously David versus Goliath. And we saw how that went. So this chapter, chapter 18, picks up immediately after that battle. So we're going to dig into verse 1 together. And as we do, imagine David's situation. Imagine David's situation. So back in chapter 16, the prophet Samuel shows up and anoints David as king. But there's a problem. There's still this other guy named Saul who's the king. So here you are waiting, but you don't get to be king yet. There's somebody else ahead of you. And David made it a policy. He said, hey, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed." ...referencing Saul when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. He said, if God wants Saul to no longer be king... ...and he wants me in his place, God's going to have to take him out, not me. I'm going to serve faithfully. But imagine being in that situation. And what we see from the text is it was a long time, maybe a decade or two... ...before David could realize his kingship and take the throne. So he's waiting and waiting. Have you ever been in that situation... You're waiting for something great. You're waiting for the promises of God. Maybe you're waiting for a job situation or a family situation. You're waiting. You're waiting. How do you wait? How do you wait? And today is instructive for us as we look at the life of David. He waits productively. He doesn't just sit around. He stays faithful to the tasks to which he is called, and he waits productively. So let's take a look at the text and see how this plays out. ...we're going to look at the first five verses together. The text says this, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul... ...this is immediately after the David and Goliath incident. After David had finished talking with Saul... ...Jonathan became one in spirit with David... ...and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him... ...and did not let him return home to his family... And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David. Along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers... As well, man, talk about a rapid succession. Here's what's going on. I want to talk through these first five verses because they've been twisted a little bit. As we start in verse one, David and Saul they're rehashing the battle with the Philistines, the death uh, of Goliath, and here comes Jonathan. And the text says that they became one in spirit, and that uh, speaking of Jonathan, he loved David as himself. So, this has been construed to maybe there was something inappropriate there. Maybe there was some sort of an inappropriate relationship. And I just want to say, that is absolutely not at all what's happening in this text. This mutual love for one another and the covenant that follows... ...is simply what happens when like-minded people with a similar zeal for God's people get together. I mean, think about these two guys. They're both young and capable warriors. They both are zealous for God and his law... They are both zealous for the people of Israel. They also both initiated faith-based solo attacks against a much larger Philistine enemy. Remember what Jonathan did a couple of weeks ago? He was just going along with his armor bearer and he sees uh, a whole garrison of Philistines up on a hill. He climbs a cliff and kills them all by himself. What about David two weeks ago? He took on the Philistine giant, the greatest warrior they had. This is the same guy right here, David and Jonathan, they are very similar. So they share similar passions and similar zeal and they are united. They're like, hey we are brothers, we're in this thing together. Let's lead God's people, let's defeat his enemies, let's move on together. That's what's happening here. It's a mutual love and respect as brothers. Nothing inappropriate there. Now, here's what's interesting in the text. Jonathan and David make this pact, this friendship covenant. And here's what Jonathan does. Jonathan takes off his princely garments and his princely weaponry. And he gives them to the new hero, to David. So here's what the narrator is showing us very subtly. Jonathan just passed on to David all of the clothing and weaponry reserved for the heir to Saul's throne. That's significant. What we're seeing here in the text is a transference of the kingdom. Now, I don't know that Jonathan necessarily meant that when he did this. I think he was just showering the new hero with gifts when he made this covenant with him. But symbolically, that's what's going on. We, as the readers of this text, know what Samuel said to David a couple of chapters ago. You are going to be the king. And now we see the prince giving him the princely weaponry and the princely garments. And this signals what's coming for us. Okay, now all along, we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel in light of what? Deuteronomy. little interaction. Deuteronomy 28, which says, listen to the voice of God and... ...disobey the voice of God and... ...die die miserably. Absolutely. And as you go on into chapter 29 of Deuteronomy... ...it reiterates these covenants. So, what we see here in verse chapter... ...I'm sorry, verse uh, 5... ...we see this word successful. And we're going to see that word three times in this chapter. That word successful is the same word... ...that's used in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. In fact, 29.9 says this. Therefore, diligently observe the words of this covenant... ...in order that you may succeed, same word, in everything that you do. So the usage of this word from Deuteronomy throughout this chapter... ...underscores the fact that David was a man who was under control of God's spirit. And this is the same spirit that made this covenant... ...back at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people of Israel. So the basis of that covenant was, if you obey, I will bless you. I will cause you to succeed... So all the times in this chapter that we see, and David had success, it's the natural consequences of that covenant. God is blessing David for sticking to the covenant. Do you see that? So David, unlike Saul, is somebody who can finally help Israel realize their covenant blessings. Under Saul, they could not be realized. But under David, these covenant blessings can be realized. Let's read on. Let's pick it up in verse chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 6. Here we go. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, a reference to Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And this is something that would happen in this time period. As the men were coming home to the villages and the towns, The women would compose these poems or songs and they would go out and they would dance and they would welcome home their heroes. It was a time of great celebration. So this is what we see happening here. Out come the women, the older women, the moms, the little girls. They're all singing and dancing for their heroes. And this is what they said. Verse 7, Saul has slain his thousands and David (sighs) his ten thousands. How do you think that's going to go over? Come on, ladies. You've got this crazy king on the throne who's hungry for power and very protective. And you're saying that this kid who killed the giant is more worthy of honor than the king? In this time period, soldiers didn't get credit for the victory. Kings got credit for the victory. And surely... ...because of what David did when he killed Goliath... ...the Israelite army routed the Philistines? I mean, it's because of David. But you give the king the glory. Not so here. Here's what happens in verse 8, very predictably. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. And he starts complaining. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Yup. Exactly. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. All right. Remember back, and this is what Saul did, to chapter 15 and verse 28, when the prophet Samuel said, Because of your sin... God has taken the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor, to one better than you. So all along, this has been in the back of Saul's mind. There was this anonymous neighbor who was coming, who was going to take the kingdom. And now, he's starting to put the pieces together. That anonymous neighbor is not anonymous anymore. It's David. Now, there's a cool word play that happens here in Hebrew. Can I just geek out for a minute? Can you hang with me? So, the word that's translated keep a close eye on is the Hebrew word oyen. And I know your lives are so much better now because you know the Hebrew word oyen, but just hang with me. So, that is the same, it sounds the same as another word, which means transgress. That word is also oyen. So, here's what the narrator is subtly telling us here. Because of this word play, we see that Saul, from this point forward, would carefully observe all that David was doing with the intent to do evil against him. That's a big deal. Previously, before this, the text says that Saul loved David, and he, when he was in his service, and whenever, whenever Saul would have his moments of crazy, David would come in and play the harp and soothe him. The text says that Saul loved him. Now, going forward, and we see that here in this wordplay, Saul only means evil for David. And in fact, he's going to be making 16 attempts on his life throughout the rest of 1 Samuel. We're going to see two of those right now. Let's pick it up in verse 10. text says this. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul, and he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, And he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. You think after the first time you leave, right? Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. All right, what's going on here in the text? Verse 10, so this evil spirit from God, we saw that earlier on in our study of 1 Samuel... There was this evil spirit that was sent to torment Saul. He went from being God's chosen man to making himself an enemy of God. And as a result, there was this spirit who tormented him. He would have these, these fits of crazy, these delusions, and David would come in and play his harp and soothe the king's mind. So it comes forcefully on Saul. And then we see this strange line. He was prophesying. He was prophesying. So that can mean one of three things. Follow along with me. When somebody prophesies in the Old Testament, they are either, number one, actually telling somebody ahead of time the plan or the word or the will of God. Number two, they're false prophets and they're just making stuff up. Or, number three, this is the same word. The same word can be translated as raving like a lunatic. Raving like a lunatic. So, the context determines which one we're dealing with here. But I want to show you something really interesting. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. So, you go Samuel, first, 2 Samuel 1 and Samuel, First and Second Kings. So, it's right after our books here. 1 Kings chapter 22. If you've never read 1 Kings, it's such a great read. I just want to encourage you to do that. 1 Kings chapter 22. So in this story you've got King Ahab and you have this prophet Micaiah. And Micaiah is speaking against or prophesying against King Ahab. And if you look at verse 17, I, mean, I just love this. Um, the king asks Micaiah something and Micaiah gives him bad news. Um, and the king says to his buddy that's standing there in verse 18, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Yeah, it's because you're an awful king, Ahab. So then this is what we see in verse 19. Micaiah continues. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, the prophet says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne... ...with all the multitudes of heaven... ...standing around him on his right and left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab... ...into attacking remote Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said... I will entice him. The Lord says, by what means? And the Spirit says, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And the Lord says, all right, you're going to succeed in enticing him. Go. So it's a little bit of a strange story. Let's jump back into 1 Samuel. Here's why I wanted to point that out. So the prophet Micaiah sees this heavenly throne room... And what we see from reading chapters like Job 1 and 2 is that there was a time at some point in history when you had God sitting on his throne and all of his angels and then also Satan and his angels would report to God. They are all under God. God controls everything. They do nothing without God's permission or God's knowing. And so God says, Ahab is a sinner. He's leading my people astray and he must be taken out of power. He's going to die in battle. How is that going to happen? And one of these spirits says, all right, the king surrounds himself with prophets, and they're false prophets. So I'm going to put a false word in their mouth, and this king is going to listen to them and go to battle and die in battle. So here's my point. That's the same word that's being he- that we see here as far as prophesy goes. And it's the, it's the words of a false prophet. So when we see in the text that Saul is prophesying in his house, don't think that Saul is sitting there telling the decrees of the Lord and good things that are going to come. ...he's either raving like a lunatic or, like these false prophets that we saw in the book of 1 Kings... ...he's giving bad information. He's being influenced by this evil spirit. Are you tracking with me? This is not good prophecy. Good things are not coming. So that's what's happening there. And David is playing the liar for him in verse 10, trying to soothe the king's mind. The text tells us Saul had a spear in his hand. When was the last time David was standing in front of somebody who had a spear in his hand? Yeah, the previous chapter. People who wield spears throughout 1 Samuel are typically enemies of God. This is one of those cool things that the narrator slides in as he's telling the story, which is why I love it so much. This is a masterfully told story. So here's David standing in front of another guy holding a spear. And the text says that he threw it at him twice. He wanted to kill David. We just learned that from That point forward, the king was eyeing David with suspicion, and now he wants him dead. So imagine that. Here's my wife right here, front row, close proximity. The king's just throwing spears. David eludes it twice. Twice. What's the king to conclude? Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul. Saul knew this. He was being tormented by this evil spirit. He knew that God had departed from him. The spirit of God was replaced by this evil spirit. Not only that, but he sees that David just escaped a close-range throw two times. The only conclusion is, God is with this guy. I can't kill him. Don't worry, Saul says. I've got another plan. Here's how his plan unfolds. Take a look at verse 13. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. I know what I'll do. I'll just put him in harm's way. He will die in the natural course of battle. I'm going to let the Philistines kill him. He put him over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Verse 14. And everything he did, he had great success because the lord was with him i can't kill this guy when saw saul saw well that's that's hard to say when saul saw how successful he was he was afraid of him what is the number one adjective used to describe king saul fear this is a man of fear but all israel and judah loved david ...because he led them in their campaigns. (sighs) That didn't work. Notice again, though, for the third time... ...we see that David had great success. That's the covenant fulfillment. He's doing what God asked him to do... ...and he's obeying the covenant... ...and God is granting him success. All right, so that didn't work, Saul says. I try to put David in harm's way... ...but he has great victories and great success... ...and now everybody loves him and not me... What am I going to do? Verse 17. Saul said to David, Hey, here is my oldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Okay, this is shady. Do you remember the stipulations for the person who, got to, who killed Goliath? He got great wealth. He got to marry the king's daughter, and his family was tax-exempt. Those three things, that's what it tells us in chapter 17. Great wealth, marry a princess, tax-exempt. Saul owed David one of his daughters. So he should have said, here is my oldest daughter, Merab, and that's it. But instead, he puts stipulations on this marriage. He says, I will give her to you only. Serve me bravely. ...and fight the battles of the Lord. Now, I don't have to anymore. I don't have to. Because David's three oldest brothers already served in Saul's army. Saul, as the king, could only take the three oldest of the sons. If there were any other sons, they didn't have to fight for him. And here's why. If the three oldest sons died in battle, they needed an, uh, another son to carry on the family name. So Saul did, or David didn't have to. But Saul was forcing him to. He's putting unjust stipulations on this marriage. So in this time period, if you wanted to marry somebody, there was something called the bride price. You would go to the father of the bride, and you would offer the person either work or gifts or treasures, something, money, and you would buy the rights to marry that daughter. So Saul is anticipating this, and he's saying, I don't need a bride price other than put your life in danger and fight the Philistines. Fight my enemies. Verse 18, but David says to Saul, who am I? And who is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Maholah. David didn't marry her. He's got the chance to become part of the royal family. And David defers out of humility... ...even though he was entitled to it for killing Goliath... ...according to the king's promise. He says, no. He says, man, you're the king. I'm just from a shepherd family. You're very rich. We're really poor. This is two different worlds colliding here. I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And here's the ironic part. In the book of Genesis, chapter 49, the kingly tribe is the tribe of Judah. David's tribe. The least of all the tribes, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, is whose tribe? And then you shudder, right? Benjamin! Yeah. How ironic. Actually, David, you're way up here, and the tribe of Benjamin is way down here. But he defers. He says, no, I I can't do this. I I can't be the king's son-in-law. I'm not worthy. Verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. What's going on here? Saul is crafty. Saul is wicked. Saul is deceitful. And what we learn, what we're going to see next week from chapter 19... ...is that his daughter, Michal, worshipped idols. And so what Saul is thinking is, okay... ...I'm going to give my idol-worshiping daughter... ...to the man after God's own heart... ...and she's going to cause him to worship idols... ...and then when he does that, he's going to become an enemy of the Lord... ...and then when he goes out to fight the Philistines, he's going to be killed... This is perfect. I will use my daughter to bring down the great man. So, end of verse 21, Saul says to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Verse 22, Saul ordered his attendants, hey, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you. And his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. And what he means by that, the king likes you, is." The king is willing to overlook your lowly status. He gets that he's the king, and you're this lowly shepherd, but he likes you. He's willing to forgive all of that. He owes you a daughter. The people love you. We need you to fight. Come on, just marry the king's daughter. Here's what David says in verse 23. They repeated these words to David, but David said, hey, do you guys think this is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Remember that phrase, little known. It's going to come up in a minute. Little known. He says, guys, I, I can't do this. This is not a small thing you're asking me to do. You're asking me to marry a princess and marry into the royal family. This is a big deal. King Saul might be willing to ignore protocol. But guys, I can't. I know who I am and I know where I come from. I can't do it. Verse 24. Saul's servants told him what David had said. Saul knows how to get to David. Verse 25. Saul replied, okay. Say to David, the king wants no bride price, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Okay. That's weird. Here's what's going on. We've talked about this before. You had the circumcised versus the uncircumcised. Circumcision was the primary means of observing God's covenant with his people. That's what differentiated them from all the other people groups. And in fact, in chapter 17, when David's going out to meet Goliath, what does he call him? That uncircumcised person. You are outside of the covenant. You are outside of the blessing. We have the covenant and the blessing. Now, it was Israel's job to make God and his covenant and his blessings known to the world... But how they differentiated themselves was by this. We're the circumcised or the uncircumcised. We have God's special covenant, and they do not. And so the king says, go to those uncircumcised. And, and there's no delicate way to put this. This is in the Bible. We can't hide from our Bibles, right? Kill 100 of them and circumcise them for me. And now I'm starting to blush. So some of your Bibles might say something like, take 100 lives or kill 100 men. Okay, this isn't symbolic. In fact, in a couple of verses, we're going to see that David understood it quite literally. So sometimes what Bible translators will do is try to soften the uncomfortable parts of the Bible. But this is messy. This is brutal. This is barbaric. This is exactly what David is going to do. Check it out. At the end of that verse, verse 25, the motive behind this is revealed. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. All right, he says, I'm going to send David out to kill 100 Philistines and to graphically dismember them. There's no way he survives that. I mean, even if he takes a couple of his mighty men along with him, the Philistines are going to come after him. I mean, 100 Philistines? This is surely the end. 26. When the attendants told David these things, he was what? pleased. A couple of years ago, um, this series on David came out, and I forgot who produced it, but I, I watched the, the videos that came out. And in this, um, in this series, David was British. He had this really nicely manicured beard and this really curly hair. He wore these big, fluffy robes. And that's how we tend to think of David, as kind of this fluffy British guy. He was a warlord. He was brutal. He was savage. He loved to kill people. He was not a nice guy. And if you go on beyond our study and you read the book of 2 Samuel, you're really going to see that. He was a harsh, brutal man. He didn't want to become the king's son-in-law until the king said... Go kill 100 people. And then he was willing. He was happy at the prospect of fighting and death. This is a hard man. This is a brutal man. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. How pleased? Before the allotted time elapsed, translate, early. The king set a time period for this. Go kill these hundred men in this amount of time. He did it early. He got up, got his weapons, got his men. Let's go kill a hundred people. He did it early. Verse 27. David took his men with him and he went out and killed 200 Philistines. And brought back their foreskins. Just doubled it. That's how excited he was. Some of your texts might still say 100, our earliest and best manuscripts, and most translations now have updated this to read 200. 200! The king said 100! He doubled it. Why? Because he's brutal! He had the chance to kill 200 and get away with it. So he did! He killed 200 Philistines, and then there's this strange, sick ceremony... They counted out the full number to the king. How gross would that have been? He's sitting on his throne and they're just... What do you do with that, right? So they counted out the full number to the king. Open the bag. Here, count them. So that that David might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul literally has no choice. And he gives his daughter, Michal, to David in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Yeah, became even more afraid. So the crown prince, his son, who just handed over all of his kingly weapons and attire and made a covenant with him, is now united to David in a covenant of brotherhood and friendship And now his daughter is united to David in a covenant of marriage. What's the saying? Keep your friends close, your enemies closer? Yeah, well, now Saul's terrified. Because the man that he believes is going to take over his throne is in his royal residence. The text says that he became or remained an enemy of David's for the rest of his life. We've already seen Saul make two attempts on David's life. Fourteen more are still to come. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, this is verse 30, the end of our chapter, David met with more, here's that word again, success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Remember what David said, I'm just a poor man and little known. by the end of this chapter, you are very well known. You're the most famous man in the land. David knows the promises that were made to him. There are going to be a few decades in coming. And in fact, the the decades ahead of him are brutal. They're hard. Saul tries to kill him um, more than a dozen times. He's going to spend a number of years wandering in the desert, hiding in caves, sleeping on rocks, people trying to kill him. At one point, he goes to the Philistines, and he has to pretend to be crazy in order to get out of it. What happens to good-looking people in the Bible? They live difficult, hard lives. But here's the thing about David, and here's a lesson for us today. How does David wait? Productively. Productively. He's still God's anointed. He's still God's king. Now he's in the king's service, the king that will soon be deposed. And he has tasks to do. He has people to defend. He has enemies to defeat. He has a king to help. We saw his faithfulness to the king. When the king tried to kill him twice, David came back and played his harp in order to soothe his troubled king. This is a man who was waiting Productively. God made promises. They will come about. But right now, I'm waiting. I'm not just going to sit on my hands and do nothing. I'm going to be active in what God has called me to. And the same is true for us today. I want to encourage you that way. If you're waiting on the Lord, and I think in some measure we all are, waiting for something from God, wait productively. Be faithful to the task to which he's called you. And know that God has great things in store. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for lessons like from the life of David. God, we know the promises that you've given to us. God, we know that one day we'll have a life with no sin when we're with you. We'll have perfect bodies that function and don't break down or get injured. We'll have good health. We'll have joyous relationships. But God, oftentimes our earthly lives are not like that. We know good things await. We know good things are coming, but hard things stand before us. So God, I pray that we would take this lesson from the life of David, and I pray that we would be motivated to wait productively. God, what have you called us to right now? How can we be faithful to those things that we're supposed to be doing? God, make us a faithful people dependent upon you and relying upon your spirit for our strength. Bless this 1BC family, I pray. May this lesson sink in and motivate them to greater trust. In Christ's name, amen.